Hi everyone, we've got a quick favour to ask of you. We're running a very short 10 question survey to get your feedback and suggestions for any future episodes of Blood Cancer Talks. So if you could jump online to bit.ly slash bcts, that's bit.ly slash bcts, uh, to fill in our short survey, we would much appreciate it. Many thanks. We're a podcast dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Please take a moment, if you haven't, to rate and review our podcast in whichever app you listen to your podcasts in, and feel free to reach out with us directly with any feedback. Today, we're excited to talk about the management of Hodgkin lymphoma, including recent very exciting clinical trial updates from both ASCO and ICML Nagano, particularly focusing on the upfront treatment of fit patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. We are delighted and deeply honoured to be joined by our esteemed lymphoma expert, Dr. Nancy Bartlett, Coleman Professor of Medical Oncology at Washington University in St. Louis and Vice Chair of the Alliance Lymphoma Committee. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Bartlett. To start with, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career background, and your clinical and research focus? Well, thank you very much for inviting me to do this. Hodgkin lymphoma is my favorite topic to discuss, so it was it was not too difficult to say yes to this invitation, and a lot of very interesting and exciting recent data, so I'm also very excited to talk about that. In terms of my career, I did my oncology fellowship at Stanford back in the early 1990s during the era of Sandra Horning and Saul Rosenberg, two of the giants in lymphoma. And I did not go to my fellowship thinking I was going to do lymphoma, but primarily because of the really incredible mentorship of Sandra Horning, it was very easy to make that decision to go into clinical research in lymphoma. As a fellow, I was very lucky to be involved with an ongoing institutional trial there, which was the Stanford Five Regimen, which given how young you are, you may not be familiar with that since it's it's been a while since that was published, but it became a cooperative group phase three trial comparing to ABBD. And although it did not win its bid to take over ABBD, that it was not superior and was a bit more toxic, but it still was a, a wonderful introduction to research and lymphoma in general and how to conduct clinical trials. It was my introduction to the cooperative group since that phase two study from Stanford went on to a large phase three study in the cooperative groups. And I then moved on to WashU in 1994 and joined the faculty here when we were just about a half a dozen people in medical oncology and no one doing lymphoma. So I had my work cut out for me, but it was, it's been tremendous. I've really had a fabulous career here in terms of all of the support and have really been able to grow a lymphoma program here. And because you can't really make a living on Hodgkin lymphoma, of course, I do all of lymphoma, which I've really enjoyed as well. And and kind of emphasizing studies that are looking at new drugs in lymphoma, not so much phase one, but kind of right past the phase one when they're getting into phase two, looking at efficacy and then very interested in always the phase three studies, trying to see if any of the new drugs can can improve the outcomes for patients. And as you know, the cooperative groups have been a big part of my career. I've been in the initially CLGB and then now referred to as the Alliance since I joined the faculty here in 94. And it's been a great ride in terms of my ability to 
interact with lymphoma experts across the country from all of the, you know, multiple institutions. And those are basically my best friends in lymphoma these days are all my colleagues from the cooperative groups and also a real opportunity to mentor young faculty from institutions all over the country. Our institution, when I was initially in cooperative groups, I was the only lymphoma person. So there wasn't really anyone here to mentor other than, you know, wonderful fellows, of course, but no other junior faculty and so that's been a, a big highlight as well. And more recently, I've been involved in a lot of trials with the bispecific antibodies. So my career has kind of moved a little bit in that direction. But Very uh, exciting and, and very special to have sort of built things from scratch as a sort of lymphoma pioneer at WashU. And now to have a kind of whole group of people that, that work with you, it's, it's very special to hear hear from you. So so back to going back to Hodgkin lymphoma, let's jump in with a case and we'll use that as the kind of springboard to talk about, to move on to then talk about some of the recent data. So we have a 22-year-old female who presents with a month of painful lymph nodes after drinking alcohol and two weeks of night sweats, lethargy, and swollen auxiliary lymph nodes. A core biopsy of one of the auxiliary lymph nodes demonstrates classical nodular sclerosing Hodgkin lymphoma, and a PET scan reveals advanced stage but non-bulky disease involving the mediastinum, auxiliary, cervical, and subdiaphragmatic nodes. She has no comorbidities. So when you think about a patient or, or meet a patient like this, what other information would you like to know to help inform treatment discussions and decisions? I think probably the IPS, although I'm not sure it would affect my treatment decision, it certainly helps with the discussion in terms of describing the prognosis to the patient. So I don't know if you have those factors on the patient, but you know we already know she doesn't have age, she doesn't have stage, and she doesn't have gender. So I guess we're just looking basically at the blood work in terms of, you know, is she anemic? Does she have a high white count? Does she have a low lymphocyte count? What's her albumin? But at the very worst, even if she had all those things, her IPS would be four. And I would, you know, that's a high risk patient, if you will. And then in terms of the patient characteristics, making decisions, certainly her gender and her age are probably most important in terms of thinking about radiation or those sort of things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I thought about putting all those details into the original vignette, but didn't want to sort of crowd it out with numbers too much. But we're interested to hear, you know, sort of that you still do kind of collect that information and put it into the IPS, even though it sort of only has a, a, a mild impact perhaps on your decision making. So before we kind of get to the recent data, let's set the stage a little bit. And so building on, you know, your answer just then, in, in general terms, what are the factors that play a role in the upfront treatment choice for patients with Hodgkin lymphoma? What factors do you think are important to patients and clinicians when choosing treatment? Yes. Yeah, so for me, I think the two main things are obviously the efficacy of the treatment, that you want to pick the best treatment. On the other hand, I think the toxicities are very important, both the short term, but for me, I think more the long-term because usually these young patients, especially a 22-year-old woman would probably tolerate most therapies quite well. And you almost feel like you can just kind of motor through the acute toxicities, but you worry, I at least worry a lot in these patients about the late toxicities because late might not be that late for these patients that you start seeing these toxicities at, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And if you're 22 years old, when you start and you're having, you know, a 
four vessel bypass when you're 34, that's a sort of a scary proposition. And I have had those patients before or you're facing breast cancer at age 38. So I think if you're in practice long enough, we all see those patients and they really stick with you in terms of just sort of the quality of life for that patient, starting from the moment they get a second cancer or serious cardiovascular disease that, you know, that that is life-changing, even though we have effective therapies for those things and it may not affect their ultimate survival, it's definitely a different survival. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned sort of second malignancy risk, cardiac and lung toxicity. And I guess I wonder, does fertility also factor much into these kind of discussions? And it decisions? does, as I think we'll talk about in a minute with some of the other, the new studies with the BRICAD, you know, we don't really have much uptake of VIACOP here. So the fertility for us or for me during my entire career has not really been an issue because the ABVD and its variants are not associated with infertility. But I think it is one of the reasons, one of the the main reasons that Biacop did not have uptake in the U.S. in these young patients. I think maybe, you know, back 20 or 30 years ago, we were not as sort of facile with having the patients seen by and the reproductive gynecology folks and getting embryos collected, getting oocytes collected. And I think that's a lot smoother procedure now, but back then that was not an easy task. And so I think, you know, we all worry about that a lot in a 22 year old in terms of how that affects again, their, their quality of life moving forward. All right. So the next question I had is that, as you know, the approaches to Hodgkin lymphoma can vary quite a bit between Europe and the U.S. Can you give us a little bit of a background as to how and why this different treatment approaches came to be? Yes, it was at the beginning of my career, interestingly. So back in the sort of mid to late 90s, and I think actually it was just exactly 20 years ago that we saw the first publication in New England Journal of Medicine of Escalated Biacop versus COP. At that time, it was COP ABVD. And I remember those were some of my first educational sessions early in my career, kind of debating the COP versus ABVD-based regimens. And I think even though the first study for with escalated COP did show both a PFS and an overall survival advantage, when we would go back and sort of dissect the standard arm, which was the COP ABVD arm, it was very low dose intensity. Patients had lots of dose delays in the standard arm and, and lots of decreased doses. And so it wasn't clear that it was sort of a, a straightforward comparison. And the toxicities were pretty severe with eight cycles of escalated COP. So lots of grade three and four infections, AML, MDS in, you know, three to 4% of patients and infertility in the majority of the patients, especially all men and most women who were over age 25. And those things were just not acceptable. I think also in that era was coming around the standard use of stem cell transplant for relapsed Hodgkin's. And so when you had a disease that you actually had potentially a curative intervention, if it came back, then the PFS difference, I think, was a little less, not less relevant, but maybe a little bit less important because we saw something that we could do for the patient if they did have it relapse. So I think that was kind of the beginning of it. And then 
you know, as, as time went on, there were more phase three trials comparing BACOP to, to ABBD. And also most of them continued to show a PFS benefit. None of the later trials showed any overall survival benefit, even with very long follow-up. And so I think we all felt justified to stick with the ABVD. And I know in Europe, the, you know, the PFS part of it was very important for them. And that was the bottom line in terms of choosing a, a treatment for their patients. I think the one area where maybe it got some traction was that LISA trial that was comparing everyone got two cycles of escalated BACOP and then they de-escalated to ABVD if they had a negative interim PET. And those results looked great with, you know, I think it was, I don't know, three to five year PFS that was greater than 90%, which is better than we had seen with anything else. And the majority of the patients only needed two cycles of escalated BACOP. That having been said, I think that was kind of happening at the same time that we were starting to use BV and the Echelon trial came along. So I think if the Echelon trial hadn't been ongoing right after that study was published, that there probably would have been more uptake. But most of us were participating in that study and putting our patients on that study as well. For our audience, can you allude to the main differences between ABVD and escalated BACOP? Yeah, so they are using similar drugs, but so all of the ABVD drugs are in escalated BACOP, but escalated BACOP also includes very high doses of prednisone. So day one to 14, patients receive prednisone on every cycle. And then it also includes procarbazine, which I think most of us are familiar with the difficulties with procarbazine. You know, they take that drug. I've forgotten. I've used that regimen in so long. It's either 10 or 14 days of procarbazine, you know, a lot of nausea. And that also adds to the infertility. And at, at, at the, in the not too distant past, there was a lot of difficulty with obtaining procarbazine, drug shortages and supplies. And then the other thing is just the administration. So the escalated BACOP, you get three days of IV etoposide. And then on day eight, you have to come back for another IV treatment. So in every three weeks, there's four days of IV treatment versus coming once every two weeks on the ABVD arm. And all the patients on escalated BACOP need growth factors because of the incidence of febrile neutropenia, and you don't need growth factors for any patient with ABVD. So I think those are the main, the main differences. A lot of, you know, much worse for the febrile neutropenia and uh, hematologic toxicities. Yeah, that's a really good framework. There are two main trials I think we should touch on briefly. One is the Rathel trial of PET-adapted therapy that was published in 2016. And the second is the Echelon trial that you just mentioned, Echelon 1, that substituted bleomycin for BV or Brentuximab vedotin, the anti-CD30 antibody drug conjugate that was published in 2018. How do you think these two trials influence standard of care of upfront treatment for Hodgkin lymphoma? So when the Raffle study was published, I think the standard of care changed immediately, <laughs> basically across the world. So if you could eliminate the bleomycin without any detriment in the PFS and an improved survive, I mean, improved toxicity profile, then that was low hanging fruit. So there was no reason not to incorporate Raffle in our standard of care. So and I guess the one issue with that was that would be true at all academic institutions in the United States and I and I assume in Europe, but you need an interim pet to do RATHL, you know, the same way it was done in the study, which means you needed to have a negative interim pet after two cycles. 
in order to eliminate the bleomycin. And so that had pretty much become standard of care at all of the academic institutions. I will tell you when they have looked at this, that that was not necessarily standard of care across the community hospitals. And so I think it probably had slower uptake in the community because patients were not getting a pet. So the physician could not eliminate the bleomycin because they didn't have an interim pet on the patient. But otherwise, I think, especially in that study also included poor risk stage two patients. So a lot of bulky Hodgkin lymphoma patients were in that study. And so for those patients, they were also having interim pets. So that has that still remains my standard of care because those patients are not included in the other trials that we're going to talk about. So six cycles of ABVD with the Rathal approach with getting an interim pet and eliminating bleomycin if they have a negative interim pet after two cycles. So the Echelon 1, I think, was for me anyway, a little bit slower uptake. So as you recall, you know, several years ago now at the results of the PFS were presented both in the, you know, at a national forum, but also published very quickly after that. And it showed a significant difference in the two-year PFS. At two years, it was like 77% versus 84%, something like that but no difference in overall survival at two years. And then they also presented at the same time the subset analysis and that there was no benefit to the BVAVD in patients who had an IPS of zero to two. And so, of course, there was a lot of discussion that it wasn't designed to do the subset analysis and that sort of thing. But it was still a very large study with a large number of patients in the zero to two risk factor group. So I think that we could draw some conclusions about that. So for me, when that first came out, I was using still ABVD for any of my advanced stage patients who had an IPS of zero and one for sure, and sometimes even a two, depending on, you know, sort of the toxicity issues. Whereas with patients with high risk disease, IPS of three to seven and some twos, I was using BVAVD. And the problem was that the BVAVD, although a better PFS, was more toxic, both in terms of the myelotoxicity. So probably halfway through the study, they actually had to regroup and they did never, they never required growth factors, but they highly suggested growth factors for all patients on that arm because of many early deaths from febrile neutropenia. And once they instituted the growth factors, those rates of, you know, toxic of death from febrile neutropenia went down tremendously. But it's difficult to give growth factors <laughs> with that regimen because basically either the patient has to be giving the growth factors or you have to give them Nulasta, which is given every two weeks. And it's a lot of growth factors, probably more than you need. But at least in the U.S., the approvals for trying to get self-administration of GCSF is more difficult than actually just giving the Nulasta when the patient comes in for their treatment. So the growth factors, I think, are an issue. And then obviously the peripheral neuropathy is an issue, giving brentuximab fidotin every two weeks that there is a fair amount of peripheral neuropathy with that. And yes, usually reversible, but not always completely reversible. So I think the fact that there was was no PFS difference in the low risk patients and the increased toxicity. I had not really adopted that as my standard of care. But then when the overall survival data came out, I think certainly 
I think most of us did transition to using BVAVD in that setting of advanced stage Hodgkin lymphoma, regardless of the risk factors. But then around the same time, obviously, we're going to talk about 1826. So I think for me, there, there was such a short time between the results of 1826 and the overall survival for BVAVD. It's like six months of using BVAVD in all of my patients. And then and then guess what? You know, a new answer, which is, has been great. Yeah, that's, that's a really great summary, I think, of both the context behind the kind of ABVD versus BACOPs thinking and then the kind of recent practice changes with Rathol and with Echelon 1, especially some, some really great nuances there around the evolving data that came out from Echelon 1 and how that affected your practice in kind of a stepwise way. So as you say, as Echelon 1 came out, the SWOG cooperative group put together S1826, which is the first of the three trials we're hoping to discuss with you today. And so S1826 was a phase three trial of almost a thousand patients with advanced stage Hodgkin lymphoma who were randomized to receive either six cycles of nivolumab plus ABD or brentuximab plus ABD. And as many people will know, nivolumab is a PD-1 inhibitor, a checkpoint inhibitor, which has very good activity in relapsed Hodgkin lymphoma. And the primary endpoint of that study was progression-free survival, PFS. The trial reported a bit earlier than people expected, I think, because the pre-specified number of PFS events was reached. And so we just heard at the recent meetings this year that the one-year progression-free survival was 94% for the nivolumab AVD arm and 86% for BVAVD. And so before we dive in, if a patient sees you in clinic this week, is that one-year PFS result enough to shift your practice? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and usually I'm super conservative. I'm waiting for it to get published in a journal. I'm waiting for it to get on the NCCN guidelines. I'm waiting for FDA approval. I would say that this is an exception to my general rule and that I actually have already been using Nevo AVD in a few patients that I've seen since the time that those results were published. And I agree there's some need for caution. And I know that many of my colleagues have not, do not feel comfortable on a, a 12 month PFS without a publication or seeing more than the abstract presentations. And I understand that again, that's usually me, but I think the things that have swayed me are the significantly less toxicity. And so to me, I, I think it's too early to say, absolutely, it's going to be better. I think those early results are pretty reassuring that it's not going to be worse and it's less toxic. So I don't really think I'm taking a risk with the patient. And, and the other thing we have is, and the reason for caution is when the first phase two study of Nevo AVD came out, which was the background for designing this trial, which is one of the Checkmate trials, I want to say 205, but don't put any money on that, that the nine-month was the initial publication in an abstract form, and the nine-month PFS was like 94 or 95%. It looked fantastic. And then we, again, have only seen an abstract form, and that was at Lugano four years ago, but still not published as far as I know are the results of that phase two study, but maybe I've missed it. The two-year PFS was 83%. So there was a big drop between the nine-month and the two-year with the Nevo AVD. So I do think we need to be careful saying it's definitely going to be superior at the one-year mark. I think even all of the 
the statisticians and everything, they'll be following this very closely. And I'm guessing it will remain superior, but I think we we don't know that. But again, for me, it's kind of an easy transition because I think that is reassuring that it will very unlikely be inferior with longer follow-up and the toxicity profile is much better. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear. What do you think about the design of this trial? Do you think, you know, in terms of six cycles, not pet adapted, and in terms of, obviously, there's no regimen that includes both the novel agents. It's just sort of putting one against the other. So, yeah, I'm interested in, in terms of how you think about that. Yeah, no, no. I think I think it's a good example of how to design these cooperative group trials, because I think simplicity is the number one criteria for rapid accrual and having an interesting question. And it's a, a standard treatment with the BVAVD and the NEVO-AVD has exactly the same schedule. People are very familiar with using nivolumab. And so I think it was, you know, it was a wonderful design in terms of, and I think we, the rapid accrual shows that this is what you need to do and no interim pet and no outside reading of the pet central review and those sort of things, which always are a big problem for patients being treated in the community and the community physicians, because you have to, in order to have these central reviews, you have to check all these boxes your nuclear medicine folks do in order to qualify to use your pets. And which I think is really a stumbling block for many studies when you have tests that require some sort of central review that it tends to slow things down and and people in the community just can't abide by all of those sort of rules and regulations that are required to do that. So I think that was key. I think the other reason it accrued so quickly was the combination of the the children's oncology group and the adult cooperative group. So this study only went down to 12. We're kind of working on the next study and pediatricians are very interested in dropping that age probably to even five in terms of including those kids in the studies. And as I think we all know, the the children's groups are much better at accruing patients to clinical trials because I think most of the kids get referred to tertiary centers when they have a cancer and patients are not treated in the community nearly as frequently. And so, you know, they were responsible for accruing 25% of the patients to 1826 were between ages 12 and 17, which I think is just remarkable. And, and so I think that'll also help us moving forward in terms of designing trials, if we can do it together and cause it will accrue faster, we'll have an answer more quickly. And so I think the pediatricians and the adult lymphoma crowd is very interested in trying to continue that concept. Yeah, I mean, it's great to see that that collaboration. Certainly, I, I get the sense in ALL that the biology differs over the life course. Does your sense very much that you're kind of very happy to keep dropping that age and including decent proportions of children in future Hodgkin trials and that those results will hold for people of any age? Oh, I hope so. And I think it's actually been the pediatricians are the ones who have sort of a different backbone. So they really made a significant compromise in participating this in terms of giving up their backbone for the Hodgkin's patients and being willing to use the ABVD or the AVD backbone to go with the BV and the 
and the Nevo. And I must say, I've talked to some of the pediatricians and they have been delighted with how easy the administration is because a lot of the pediatric protocols tend to give drugs over you know, sequential days and and this sort of the day one and eight schedule and a lot more visits. And so again, they've realized the the advantage of having an easier schedule, both for the for not only for them, but obviously for the kids and for the parents in terms of the visits. So if this whole if these results hold and we're really excited for the subset analysis, which I think will be one of the first things that the statisticians proceed with, is the age, you know, looking at it by age in terms of the outcomes, because the, the, the kids were accrued a little bit later, they got open a little bit later, and it's did the study stayed open for the kids later than it was for the adults. So their PFS is a little bit behind the adult PFS. So I think it'll be another probably 12 months before it's really solid with all the age groups. But we're all very interested to see that in terms of just making sure that that using the adult backbone is working in the kids. Now we'll move to toxicity. As Dr. Bartlett, you've already mentioned some of the important toxicities of BV, for example. So there were some important findings in S1826. So one was that there was less peripheral neuropathy with Nevo AVD, about 29%, compared to BV AVD, which was about 55%. And grade 3 neuropathy was 1% versus 8%. There was also similar febrile neutropenia, about 5% versus 7%, despite only about half of patients in Nevo AVD arm getting GCSF versus 95% of patients in the BV AVD arm receiving GCSF. And about 11% of patients discontinued nivolumab compared to about double, 22% who discontinued BV. So how do these and any other toxicity results affect your interpretation of the trial or use in the real world? Yeah, so the, maybe address the peripheral neuropathy first. And I think that wasn't surprising that the rentuximab, the dotin arm, had significantly more peripheral neuropathy, especially the grade three neuropathy. I was actually kind of surprised to see the numbers for the peripheral neuropathy in Nevo AVD was in 28 or 29%. And again, most of those were, almost all of those were grade one and two. But even that, for me, maybe I just don't ask enough, but it's pretty unusual to have any peripheral neuropathy with Benblastin that is alters your activities of daily living in any way. And so it's pretty uncommon that I see patients have that. So I was kind of surprised that those numbers were as high as they were. The BV doesn't surprise me. And I think that's kind of what we all expected. And 8% grade three peripheral neuropathy is significant because that's that's at least life-changing, quality of life-changing over the short term at the very least, whether it's sensory or motor. And then the other one is the myelosuppression. And I think, interestingly, I think that's kind of a, a, oh, the way we practice medicine in terms of the number of patients who had growth factors on the Nevo AVD arm was surprising because that was physician discretion. And we don't use growth factors with AVD. They're not needed at all. And we all know that. And Nevo doesn't add anything to the myelotoxicity of the regimen. So I'm surprised that 54% of the physicians and and they're still going to drill down on all of that data. I've asked Dr. Herrera about that a few times, and I know they're going to do the best they can to look at that and see whether those patients were given growth factors after they were found to be neutropenic or you know, preventatively right from cycle one, day one. And so I think it would be important for us to 
advertise, if you will, that growth factors are not needed with Nevo AVD. We did not use it in any of our patients on that study. And of course, everyone is neutropenic the same way they are on AVD when they come in for cycle one day 15, they're oftentimes already neutropenic. And it's, it's kind of a strange phenomenon. Basically, the they're neutropenic at the time they're coming for the treatment. But as we all know from a lot of historical data, that the incidence of febrile neutropenia is extremely low, even with those low neutrophil counts. And I think the patients are basically about to recover. And that's why we sort of get away with that approach. So I hope that people don't start using when Nevo AVD becomes the standard of care, I hope that people realize that even though 54% of physicians elected to use growth factors, I don't think that tells us that they're required. And in fact, I think that they're absolutely not. And then on the BV arm, I think they are absolutely required that there was a lot of febrile neutropenia and even grade five toxicities on the echelon study before they encouraged everyone to have growth factors. And I think that is part of the difficult toxicity. I think we've all seen that in our young patients getting BVAVD when they get the growth factors, they have oftentimes tremendous bone pain. And I will tell you, they just do not feel well. And I not infrequently have to either decrease the dose of the BV or completely eliminate the BV a few cycles into it because the patients are quite miserable. So I'm not surprised about the number of patients who had to discontinue BV being twice the number of patients who had to discontinue Nevo, you know, completely at some point during the treatment. In terms of other toxicities, I think we're all interested in the immune-mediated toxicities with the Nevo AVD. But as we've seen with other immune-mediated toxicities with regimens that combine chemotherapy and the PD-1 inhibitors, they're much lower than you are when, when you're giving the PD-1 inhibitors alone. But I also think they're much lower in Hodgkin's for some reason than they are when you use those PD-1 inhibitors in the solid tumors. So even when you're using it in the relapse setting as a single agent, it's pretty uncommon. And I think, interestingly, if you go back and sort of drill down on those immune-mediated toxicities, the pneumonitis and colitis, which are probably the two that we worry most about in terms of severe immune-mediated, were actually higher in the BV arm than they were in the Nevo arm and in terms of the high-grade toxicities. And so I think we forget that BV can cause really bad diarrhea <laughs> and you know can sometimes cause pneumonitis. And I think the only thing that was actually higher in the Nevo arm were the thyroid-related toxicities. And I think we've all seen that going both directions, hypo and hyper, usually starting with hyper, and then they quickly burn out and become hypo. And that is some, somewhat of a problem because I have had a few of those patients, and then they're basically on Synthroid for the rest of their life. And some of them even have reminded me what a hassle it is to take Synthroid because you have to wait so long after food and before food and this kind of stuff. And so it's not completely benign to be hypothyroid, but I'd say it's still a relatively small percentage of patients. Yeah. And I guess compared to having neuropathy, whenever you have an active drug, it's hard to have absolutely no cost, but, but no, it is really important because it, it wasn't a huge amount of information in the presentations about the immune events, presumably because mm-hmm. there weren't that there weren't that many of them. Right, but, right. But certainly, when we when we look to the solid tumors and see how not just how how frequent, but how you know some of them can be quite severe, like type one diabetes or something. 
in right. solid tumor land, as you kind of point out, it does seem certainly less with in combination with chemo and perhaps also for whatever reason in, in Hodgkin's. So yeah, were there, were there any other comments you wanted to add about 1826 before we, before we swap to Brickhead? No, I don't think so. Just all very excited to see all the sub-sub analyses and the longer term follow-up, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the, the next trial we are keen to hear your thoughts on is HD21, which is run by the German Hodgkin Study Group. And that was a phase three trial of about 1,500 patients where they compared pet-adapted BRICAD versus escalated beer cop, also pet adapted, where they substituted bleomycin in the beer cop for berentuximab vodotin. And they had two co-primary endpoints for this study. The first was non-inferiority for efficacy, and the second was superiority for treatment-related morbidity, which was a sort of combined endpoint of a, of a few different toxicities. And depending on whether patients had a positive or negative interim PET scan, they would either receive four cycles or six cycles of whichever arm they were randomized to. Now, this study had three-year PFS data, or three-year data, and the three-year PFS was 94.9% with BRICAD and 92.3% for escalated beer cop, which demonstrated non-inferiority and also showed a trend towards superiority. And I think important to note that about 40% of each arm received six cycles and about 60% only needed the four cycles. So, you know, 95% three-year PFS is pretty good. Do you think that for the BioCop half of the world or part of the world that this is practice changing? And, and what are your thoughts about it? Oh, I think it will be for sure. If you were giving BioCop that you would give BRIACAD instead with those sort of PFS numbers and also the decreased toxicity. I think there's no reason not to do that. And I think the most important part of that trial is their use of interim PET to de-escalate to four cycles, because, I mean, I think that is part of the problem with that regimen is just a lot of cumulative toxicity and people just wear out. And so I think the four cycles makes it much more enticing than it would have been otherwise. I still, I know you're going to ask me, what do I think compared to Nevo AVD? And, uh, but I think in terms of the regimen itself, it's, you know, it's still toxic. And if you look at that toxicity data, which I thought the design was outstanding in terms of having two primary endpoints, the toxicity and the PFS, which I think are both critical in this patient group, especially when the PFS is going to, we know it's going to be outstanding. But if you drill down on, they did show lower treatment-related morbidity defined as grade three or four toxicities. There were significantly less of them in the BRICAD arm. On the other hand, interestingly, there was no difference in the incidence of febrile neutropenia or infections between those two, and it was still like 20% in each arm. And then the biggest change was actually the need for transfusions. And so significantly fewer patients had red blood cell and platelet transfusions, but still patients were getting red blood cell and platelet transfusions, even on BRICAD. And that's almost unheard of with Nevo AVD. Certainly a platelet transfusion would never be needed. And, uh, you know, red blood cells may be in, an, in older patients, but extremely rare in a younger patient. And then also I liked their table when they did their presentation about the different regimens and, and what the advantages of BRICAD were compared to the BIACOP. And they gave all the doses and what the schedule was. And 
the the steroids, I think, popped out to me that they were emphasizing that there would be less difficulty with bone loss and weight issues and infections. But the steroids for BRCAD are DEX, if I read this correctly, DEX, 40 milligrams daily for four days uh, with each cycle. And so day one to four, so that's the equivalent to like 250 milligrams of prednisone a day for four days. And you get it for at least four cycles and you might get it for six cycles. And so that's still a lot of steroids. I mean, enough, I think, to cause both short and longer term toxicities. I think there's going to be bone loss with with that dose of DEX. And then again, it's that complicated administration schedule. They still give the etoposide IV three days in a row. At least it looks like that from the protocol that they don't give the PO for day two and three, which we do in this country for other regimens. I mean, it's not to say you couldn't use it PO on day two and three, but then you're kind of futzing with the dose a little bit, having to give twice the dose to make sure they're getting the same dosing. And so I think it's much, it seems better than be a cop and four cycles certainly seems better than six, but it's still more toxic than VVAVD and more toxic than NevoAVD. And is 95% different that at three years different than, you know, 94% at one year, maybe. And so I guess we'll have to wait and see. But I think the other thing was, I'm fairly certain that BRCAD Viacop study included the stage two patients. So, cause I, on one slide, it says 84% had stage three or four, which means 16% must've had stage one or two. And I'm sure they were high risk, either bulky or B symptoms or something, but I'm not a big fan of mixing those stages in terms of, I still think that a patient who has bulky stage two disease has a different disease and a better disease than a patient who has stage three or four disease. The, the BVAVD study and the Nevo BVAVD study, so Echelon 1 and S1826 were very clean, all stage three and four patients. And those ones that start mixing the stage two in, then you're like, oh, I don't know, you know, is it different? And I'm sure eventually, hopefully, they'll give us the results for just the stage three and four patients, which is what you would really need to compare it to S1826. Yeah, I think the thing I think maybe surprised me the most was that some of the tops in BRCAD looked better, like almost like we're meeting somewhere in the middle between AVD and Beacop by, by you know, because like, as you, you've mentioned in multiple contexts, brentuximab is not a benign drug, mm-hmm. but, but because of they've altered not just the brentuximab, but, a, but they've made a few different alterations to go right. from Beacop to Brecad, that if we're aiming for the Goldilocks, if we were, it's sort of interesting having mm-hmm. done some of my training in Australia where we use both Beacop and ABVD, we're kind of not religious about mm-hmm. either. That that maybe Brickhead is sort of heading towards, or maybe some somewhere between Nevo AVD and Brickhead is the kind of Goldilocks regimen. Yeah, no, no, you might be right in terms of maybe we could escalate a bit, but still, when they got rid of procarbazine, which is a big advantage, but it's still atoposide is kind of plus minus for me in terms of in Hodgkin's and just added potential myelotoxicity and perhaps increased risk of second malignancies and that sort of thing. So, but I think you might be right that Nevo AVD may not be the final answer for us. And maybe we need to tweak that a bit. And you foreshadowed this question a bit, but I think it is worth coming back to it. If you look at the two trials side by side, do you think in a world, in in a place that thinks about both regimens or Mm -hmm. what, what do you think, do you think there's an, you know, 
enough there to dip to encourage religious people from either camp to dip their toe in the other camp or do you think this will just lead to two new standards of care in Europe and the US respectively I don't know um, until the next I, round of yeah, trials come yeah out. no I think it's a great question I think it will lead to two standard two new standards of care over the short term for sure, that I think they're going to do BRICAD and that we're going to do NEVO-AVD. I think bringing BRICAD here will be harder than bringing NEVO-AVD there, but I'm going to guess that they're going to add NEVO <laughs> to one of their backbones, you know, and I don't understand all the rules and regulations in other countries in terms of whether they could use data from our study to give that regimen in their country or not. And I think that will be country by country dependent in terms of whether they could adopt that straight without doing another trial there and getting those approvals. But I think it's more likely to go that direction than to go this direction. Yeah, to put my regulation hat on for one second, it, it probably depends more on reimbursement, which which mm -hmm. countries will, will agree to pay for it in the upfront setting. Okay. I don't think it's so much of a, that the regulator mm -hmm. isn't, is not as obsessed with the trials having to have been done in European okay, patients well, so, so that, much as it being, and, and each of the European countries has a different approach for deciding yeah. uh, pricing and cost effectiveness. So, well, so that'll be so, interesting yeah. because I'm going to guess that Nevo ABD is probably cheaper than yeah. RECAD because no growth factors. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Nevo and BV are probably a wash in terms of the cost per dose. And, I think uh, Nevo's a little bit less than BV for memory. Yeah. yeah. So with more toxicity, there's going to be more hospitalizations and the global look at the cost of the regimen that I'm sure Nevo ABD will be cheaper. So I think if the physicians push for it and they want it, then it sounds like in many countries, if it's just a cost issue, that it'll probably, it'll probably make it. Yeah. Well, yes, costs and, and kind of practice for patterns as we sort of, sort of talked mm -hmm. about before. So... The third trial, which the message is less clear perhaps from this trial, but it, but also very impressive cooperative group study presented recently is called Phil Rouge, and it was led by the Italian lymphoma group. And they took 500 patients and randomized them to either receive pet-adapted ABVD a la raffle or six cycles of dose-intensified ABVD, which they called, helpfully, ABVD DDDI. Mm -hmm. uh, which we can probably just call dose-intensified dose yeah. or, or dose-dense ABVD. <laughs> now, interestingly, they did show a, an improved three-year progression-free survival of 86.7% compared to 73%, so a substantial improvement. And unsurprisingly, there were more kind of grade three to four adverse events in the dose-intense arm, so 70% compared to 57%. But I couldn't see much in the presentation in terms of cardiotoxicity-specific data, which I'm sure will come with the full paper. So, yeah, so I'm very keen to hear what you think and, and of these results and how they, if at all, you know, will impact things. Yeah, so when I looked at that, I think, you know, it's hard to look at it in the setting of these other two regimens that we've just talked about that sort of use the new agents. And so the question is, are we interested in a regimen that escalates probably one of the most toxic drugs in the regimen, the anthracyclines, and doesn't use any of the new regimens? And again, it's not to say that it can't become some hybrid of these things and that maybe we could use that data to 
to design the next trial. But I know that that would not be anything that pediatricians would be interested in. In fact, they already talk about trying to use less cycles of ABVD to minimize the anthracyclines. And I think even beyond the pediatricians, it's the sort of young adult population as well, thinking about using 70 milligrams per meter squared of adriamycin instead of 50 milligrams per meter squared per cycle is is a big change. And especially if patients required six cycles of therapy. And I can't remember in that regimen whether they had some patients only receiving four cycles based on the interim PET of the dose dense or whether everyone got six. Do you I think everyone got six. Everyone got six. So again, that's going to be a non-starter for if we're trying to do any trials in combination with the children's oncology group, because they've mentioned multiple times trying to minimize the anthracyclines. And I think we all see those patients as well, who 20 years after their treatment for Hodgkin's, they present with, you know, cardiomyopathy with an EF of 35%. Thankfully, they've got much better interventions now and medications to sort of help boost those ejection fractions. But I think those are even in people who didn't receive radiation. So I think just getting adriamycin at the ABVD doses when you're 20 probably puts you at increased risk for a cardiomyopathy when you're 40. And so I, that's my problem with that trial is I just, I think we, we can hopefully have a different approach. I think before the days of Nebo and BV, that's exactly what we were thinking of is how can we, you know, escalate this to have better results. But I think probably now we don't need to do that. Yeah, I think you you summarized it very nicely. But you did remind me of one thing that we didn't ask you about 1826, which was the radio the use of radiotherapy was very low in both oh, yeah. arms. Mm-hmm. Do you what do you think the kind of explanation for that is just very successful? You know, that's very interesting because in the previous pediatric study looking at their sort of regimen, I think it's I always get this wrong, ABVEPC, I think it is, their backbone versus adding BV and taking out bleo from that backbone that that was recently published and again showed an advantage to the BV. So in that study, still like 55% of patients received radiation in that pediatric study. And if you look back on all their studies with advanced stage Hodgkin's that, you know, 55 to 60% of their patients receive radiation. And in the 1826 study, you had to declare ahead of time whether you were going to radiate the patient. And there were rules for when you were allowed to radiate the patient. They had to have had a PET scan that had a a five-point scale score of four or five, or that had to be greater than 2.5 centimeters. There was a whole list of things. But only, I think it was 1% of patients in the study received radiation therapy, which means that all those pediatricians who were used to giving radiation to 55 to 60% of their patients declared ahead of time that they were not going to give radiation, which I found fascinating. The adults, I mean, I think none of us ever declared we were going to give radiation for any patient, even who met those criteria, because I think if they had a four or five at the end, we and they had stage three or four disease, and we did a biopsy and it showed persistent Hodgkin's, they would just be going on to more systemic therapy, not radiation. So I, you know, it's, it's fabulous that many kids are being spared radiation, but just the whole philosophy behind that was shocking to me because when I don't know whether they're, whether they were allowed to change their mind at the end, 
<laughs> or whether no one met the criteria. Maybe they said they were going to radiate and, and then no one met those criteria to be able to, to go on with the radiation. But that seems unlikely because a lot of patients have disease that is greater than 2.5 centimeter that's not pet abbott at the completion of treatment, especially anyone who had mediastinal disease. So for me, I, and again, hopefully they'll show us all that, but to me, it means that those pediatricians were not declaring going into the regimen that they were going to use radiation. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting to kind of hear how people think about it. I want to ask you again about 1826, and it sounds like you're already building the next trial. You know, obviously, one of the things about 1826 is it should shift back to six cycles for everyone. Mm -hmm. What do you think the next trial looks like in terms of building on this, the hopeful continued success of 1826? Yeah, and we have started those discussions. And it's interesting. We were initially asking folks, are you more interested in de-escalation or are you more interested in trying to hit the 100% mark, meaning adding BV and Nevo to ABD and seeing if you can do better than 94% at one year has been the discussion. Or are you more interested in saying, wow, 94% sounds great. Do you think there's a subset of patients where we can give four instead of six? And I think we're all interested in both. And so the question is how you can design a trial. One straightforward way would be to do a three-arm trial where you know you get one arm is the Nevo ABD at the baseline for six cycles, one gets Nevo ABD for four cycles, and one gets BB Nevo ABD for six cycles. And again, that would be a very straightforward and simple trial. But the question is whether you should be doing the sort of interim pet kind of approach. Is there anything that we can do to decide who might be able to have four versus six? And instead, do you design a trial that's everyone starts with two cycles of Nevo, ABD, and then you escalate to BB, Nevo, ABD in patients who meet X criteria, and you de-escalate to only two more cycles of Nevo, ABD in people who meet Y criteria? The problem is the interim PET that not quite as useful probably with Nevo AVD because we see some false positives and that not only at the beginning, but at the end, not only interim, but also at the end of treatment as well. So I think it makes it harder to make a decision based on that interim pet. And hopefully we'll see all that data from 1826 as well in terms of, I know I think there was more of at Lugano than there was at ASCO in terms of presenting the CR rates, which were not presented initially. Mostly their interim pet was not required on that study. So mo many of the adult population, we did it anyway, but you know we're only gonna basically have end of treatment pets to look at in terms of making those decisions. So, and I think in terms of using other prognostic factors, the IPS probably not good enough to decide. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about using metabolic tumor volume. And I know there's a lot of institutions around the country who are very interested in incorporating that into the treatment for advanced stage Hodgkin's and using it as a way to decide who's going to get escalated and who's going to get de-escalated, meaning the metabolic tumor volume at diagnosis, and then mixing that with the interim PET result. But the problem with uh, that I see with that is it's hard enough to get a five-point scale score on an interim PET, much less getting the metabolic tumor volume before the patient starts any treatment, and if that's going to be centrally determined. And again, you can just see that where that's going to go in this country, that that basically none of the community doctors will be able to participate in that study. And they were 
big accruers to 1826. And so I think if we start adding that kind of requirement, that it will be hard to accrue to that. And the other thing is, even if you are able to get the academic institutions to do it for the trial, the question is, can you then do it as standard of care that you need that to decide the standard of care treatment? And that won't be very helpful because if the community can't get it, then they won't be able to use it to sort of determine that standard of care. So I think what we've learned is it needs to be very straightforward and simple with not as as bad as it sounds, not a lot of high technology. And it seems crazy that we don't have a program that can just spit out the metabolic tumor volume on your report the minute you get your PET scan. And uh, of all the high technology things we have that we still don't, we've been talking about metabolic tumor volume for 15 years, and yet it's still an experimental <laughs> prognostic factor. So until we get that figured out where it can just come out the same way that your CT report comes out or your PET report comes out with all of those factors on it, I think it's going to be hard to use that. And I think other things in terms of deciding escalate, de-escalate, things like CT DNA, I think it's making a lot of progress in the NHL world. I think it's being looked at certainly in Hodgkin's lymphoma, but I think we're a lot farther behind in terms of being able to use that as any kind of a marker for deciding escalation or de-escalation, but hopefully in the future. Thanks. I think that's a, a great summary of, I was I had about three more questions primed and you answered them all before I could ask them about, oh, perfect. Uh, okay. about PED and about CDNA and about <laughs> escalation and de-escalation. So yeah. I think I'd just like to close by saying thanks so much for joining us on Blood Cancer Talks. We've been delighted to have you and, and it's been a great discussion of, of these particularly two practice changing and third important large cooperative group trials in Hodgkin lymphoma. And yeah, just a huge thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great time. Thank thanks. You.